0: When you're in class, do you ever wonder, am I doing this technique right? What is the purpose of this particular nuance? Is this really going to work on the street? In today's episode, we continue our technical discussion of three more techniques with the Jiu-Jitsu Master. From the dojo to the octagon, we bring you the Jiu-Jitsu
1: Master Podcast!
0: Welcome to another edition of the Jiu-Jitsu Master Podcast. This is your co-host Sri pendicatla and with me is co-host Shihan Russ St. Hilaire, 7th Degree Black Belt in Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu. How are you doing today, Shihan? Doing great. Good morning, Sri. Good morning. Yes, it is early, but never too early for jujitsu. Never. So today we're going to continue our discussion and theme from last time, which is a technical podcast where we'll be talking about one Aikyujitsu technique, one Nage technique, and one Neiwaza technique. Starting off, let's talk about Ikajo.
1: Ikajo, sure. What can we tell you about Ikajo?
0: Maybe let's start with the history.
1: Okay, that sounds great. So Ikajo... Name meaning, you know, the first principle or the first method. Really it's just the first way that people that did the grappling arts realized that you could bend an arm and it would cause the person to move. So the the concept beh- behind Ikajo is just that um, the elbow only bends comfortably in one direction. Doesn't bend the other way comfortably, and matter of fact, it locks out. And when it locks out Uh, the body is trying to relieve that pressure. So then the shoulder kind of comes into play and it bends the body forward in order to relieve that pressure. So you can really control somebody by simply grabbing onto their wrist with one hand and pressing down on their elbow with the other. So that's the basic concept. And that concept um, really applies to many techniques across uh, jujitsu. So they each have names because of you know, how they're done and why they're done, but the concept itself is the elbow doesn't bend in the opposite direction that it's supposed to. So therefore, you end up with techniques like Ikajo in the Aiki Jutsu world, or Nikajo, or in newaza, you know, Jujigatami, or Udigatami. Um, any of those type of techniques that bend the, techni- the elbow backward really has the same concept. In Ikajo, in particular, you know, this is controlling the person's body by controlling their arm from a standing position. And typically, as in all Aiki Jitsu techniques, the reason this is being done is um, either defense against a weapon, a weapon attack, or weapon-to-weapon fighting. So... The concept here is the person has a knife in their hand, um, more than likely in the ice pick type of position where they're coming down to stab you in the head or, you know, in the upper chest. And, you know, you essentially are going to control them now and stop them from doing that by controlling their arm. Um, So that's really the. The history uh, behind it, um, it can be a little more complex than that, uh, especially when you're dealing with weapons two weapons. So if that person's got a knife and I have a knife, um, there are some ways that you can use the Ikajo concept to win that that knife fight. And also if you were trying to remove a sword from the person's hand, if they were striking downwards, you know, also you can you can do that uh, with Ikajo. But the most important piece of this is that it's the first principle taught about how to control someone's arm from a standing position, and that is to bend the elbow in a way that it doesn't go.
0: What is the proper way to do this technique, and what are some of the pitfalls that we should watch out for?
1: Well, when we start practicing Ikajo at white belt level, at the very beginning level, we like to use the two on one hand grab position. So your opponent is using you know, both of their hands to grab you by the wrist. And the reason why I think this is an important way to learn Ikajo is it teaches you the mechanics that you have to put into an Ikajo to make it work. So it's very important with Ikajo that when you begin to turn the person's arm over, so you're, you're turning their arm from a normal sort of hanging position to a point where their elbow is pointed towards the ceiling or is pointed upward. That transition of the arm, of course, is going to run into resistance from the opponent. And understanding the mechanics of how to go around that resistance is really key. So that's one of the reasons we teach two-on-one wrist grab Ikajo at the very beginning. So let's walk through that a little bit step by step. So when the person is grabbing uh, your wrist, they have control in a few different directions, right? The up and down motion, they can pretty easily resist. And the side to side motion, they can pretty easily resist. So those four directions are not where you want to go when you begin your movement uh, with Ikajo. What you really need to think about is their two arms. Uh, And your arm, more like the axle on a car between two wheels. So the movement is very circular because it's very difficult to resist a very small circular motion as opposed to broad side-to-side or up-and-down motions. So as an example, if the person is grabbing my right hand, I'm going to have my palm facing the ground, my hand open, my fingers spread, and I'm going to begin to move my hand in the direction that my thumb is pointing. So of course, if they're grabbing my right hand with my palm facing the ground, my thumb is gonna be pointed to the left. And I am going to now begin to circle my hand, not really trying to move their arm right or left or up or down, but to circle around their point of contact to the left and then work my hand up and around their wrists. So that motion is the only place where you can move that doesn't have resistance and that takes a lot of practice. You really need to you know, spend some time doing that motion and understanding the movement of the wrist, a little bit of the dropping of the elbow so that you can work your way around their point of contact, their strength point. Once that happens, especially as your hand now is circling clockwise and begins to come up against their wrist, if they are holding on really hard, That at that point is going to really lock their wrists up, and the only thing that can happen to relieve that pressure is their elbow will begin to bend, it'll begin to bend upward, and that is really something that you want to have happen. Because I'm using these car metaphors at the beginning, you're thinking of your arm and their arms as the axle between two wheels, right? So you're looking at that circular motion, but then as you come around and their elbow begins to lift up into the air because of the pressure against their wrists. Now we're thinking more of like a crankshaft in a car. So, um, for some of the younger people that don't know what a crankshaft is, you know, imagine a uh, a shaft of metal with, you know, various, uh, you know, right angles and half squares kind of taken, uh, out of it up and downward to create torque in an engine. So, This is kind of like what the elbow is doing. So now we've got wrist contact and now I'm going to reach up with my left hand. I'm going to put my left hand on their elbow. And now instead of it being a circular motion sort of as an axle, it's going to be a cranking motion like a crankshaft in a car or one of those old time wood drills. Um, And you're going to press that elbow up and towards their face. Okay, so that those opposing motions between The twisting of the wrists and the cranking of the elbow up towards the face really begins to control their body. Now, interestingly enough, I've spent a good amount of time here talking about these mechanics and none of them have anything to do with putting pressure on the elbow in the opposite direction that it goes. So you can see at the very beginning of Ikajo, there are some very important mechanics that you have to learn in order to even execute. Ikajo and I will tell you that these are actually the more important parts. These are the parts that really control that person's body Um, So here we have the hand twists up and around it causes the elbow to raise my left hand goes on the elbow It pushes it towards the person's face. That's going to completely control their body set them off balance and at that point once they're off balance now you're in the position to do your ikajo because now they can't resist their brain is making decisions between staying on balance or you know, toppling down onto the ground. So it's gonna be making adjustments based off of not falling down, and the concentration sort of leaves that resistance on the arm. At that point, I'm gonna very, very strongly step forward with my left foot in front of their body and push down on their elbow as hard as I can in a very fast motion until my left arm is completely locked out and straight, at the same time, my right hand, which is going to very naturally happen in that circle motion it was doing, is going to grab onto their wrist so I can control their arm. And now they're pressed up right against my left hip. Their arm is across my stomach area. I have an extended left arm perfectly straight. My right arm is holding onto the wrist. The wrist is actually higher than the elbow. And that's what gives me the control for Ikajo. Now, if we are doing ikajo as a controlling technique, that may be where you stop. You may just simply control that person at that point. Um, you may want to take them d- down to the ground, which still may be a controlling type of technique, where at that point, you know they're bent over. More than likely, they didn't feel like hitting their face on the ground, so they've probably put their left hand on the ground uh, in order to stop from falling over. And then all you simply have to do is walk to your right, which is also to their right, because there's nothing there supporting them from falling down. And they'll simply topple over, you know, land on their right shoulder, the right side of their face on the ground, and then you have good control. Now, let's think back to the real reason that Aikijitsu was done that I was talking about at the beginning, and that is defense against weapons. So I may decide to control somebody that has tried to stab me with a knife, but I can guarantee you that on the battlefield, um, they were not really worried about controlling somebody because if you were going to spend the time to control somebody, you were going to be very susceptible to attack from other people pretty instantaneously. So like all other Aiki the real meaning behind it is to break bones. And when as I had described before, that hand, your left hand was coming up to their elbow and pushing it towards their face in order to bring it down and control them. On the battlefield, they would have made a fist, what we call the tetsui uh, striking position, and they would have used the um, ulna part of their arm. Uh, so that is the bone on the pinky side of your, of your arm um, that slams against that elbow as hard as possible, and when it presses down, it's not pressing down with the intent of control, but it's pressing down at a velocity and a speed that that person cannot keep up with and would simply dislocate that elbow, which would be incredibly important on the battlefield if somebody had a weapon in their hand. And, you know, once you dislocate that arm and they're down screaming in pain and they can no longer use that arm to stab you, you know, you would move on to the next, uh, you know, the next uh, opponent. So sort of different ways of looking at Ikajo and how it can be done. Um, But that two-on-one wrist position really gives you the basics of the understanding of how Ikajo is executed. And of course, it can be done from all kinds of other attacks.
0: Can it be done, or can it even be executed when your uke or your opponent is initially resisting?
1: So you're saying at the beginning, you know, you try to move and you you really just can't do anything. They're just holding on, you know, as hard as possible.
0: Right. And they grab your wrist, uh, the two on one, they grab it really hard, really tight, or you have a really strong, big person.
1: Right. So in a classroom setting, of course, that can absolutely happen. But there's no realism to that from a self-defense standpoint. Um, if somebody ran up to me on the street and then just held my hand as hard as possible, I'd just be looking at them like, okay, so you're just standing there holding my wrist. What's that? So that's not going to happen. More than likely what would happen if we're not in a weapon, you know, scenario, but we're in a, you know, somebody's grabbing your wrist, they're more than likely trying to grab you and take you somewhere. They're using your wrist sort of as a handle to your body to drag you into an alley or pull you out of a car or pull you off somebody else or, or something to that effect. And so that motion is itself is a dynamic motion that you're very easily able to take control of because they've decided to move your body you know and in jujitsu we don't resist you know we're going to flow right with whichever direction they wanted to, to pull us and going to execute that ikajo technique and very likely by the time we push that elbow against their face they're they're going to go flying to the ground you're really not going to even get a chance to do a heck of a lot of the ikajo in perfect form uh, because there's so much Power in in that push when combined with their pull, in class, that's just somebody being ornery and completely resistant. There's certainly a way to do that as an exercise in order to make your ikajo res, you know stronger. But in reality, nobody's just going to hold your wrist and stand there completely still, not doing anything. If they were doing that, maybe because someone else was going to attack me, I'm trying to make up a scenario in my head. I would probably just punch them with my left hand in the face, and then you know, completely Ikajo. Uh, And again, Ikajo is one of many, many techniques. It may or may not be the first one that you go for. I mean, I'm thinking somebody grabs my wrist with two hands, I might just do the Hazushi escape where I reach through, grab my own hand and pop it out. And that's one of the phenomenons that happens in a martial art class as you're learning. You know, you and your partners are learning these techniques and you can figure out over time ways to resist each and every one of these techniques. And it's, it's not really that meaningful, right? I, I just don't feel that statically holding on to a technique or statically resisting a throw really has any meaning in the real world. Because when you execute that in the real world, that won't be the scenario. There, there won't be a static person just standing there resisting what you do for no reason whatsoever. So it's really not something to be concerned with. It's more about telling your partner, okay, like, let's just practice.
0: Thank you, Shian. Uh, I think a future podcast will be discussing levels of resistance and while well, you're in training in class, so I'll, I'll defer any further questions on that. Okay. In class, you have described doing this technique as well as other Aikijutsu techniques as sort of a, a wave. Can you explain the philosophy behind that and how this is done in a practical fashion?
1: Absolutely. There are Concepts in Aiki that are very, very important. Two of them in particular. One is the circular motion, as opposed to the straight Jujitsu techniques, where if someone is coming directly at you and your force, the force is directly at you, you're going to let that force come at you and use it to throw them in a linear direction. If somebody is pulling you backward from like a rear choke. You're going to follow in that direction and use that direction to take advantage of them and their balance and throw them. In Aikijitsu, when a force is coming directly at you, you tend to circle out of the way. You create this centrifugal force where you become sort of the center of the hurricane and the people on the outside are really affected by those centrifugal forces and they lose their balance and they're redirected and thrown or controlled. So that circular motion is something that's particular to aikijutsu and then also the concept of the wave is also very important and it's a timing in jujitsu we match the speed the effort and the timing of the attacker and that's what causes that to blend in aikijutsu we change it up a little bit so we may initially receive the attack at the same speed as being given But then we may increase its speed or decrease its speed depending on our need. And it may go through fluctuations. We may initially blend and then we may slow it down and then we may speed it up. And it's all about keeping that person sort of off base, not really understanding what's happening and how to blend with the the various motions and speeds. So a really good example of, is just the ikajo we were just talking about, um, and that could apply to ikajo from a front choke, or it could apply to ikajo from a rear wrist grab or or any anything else. That would be that initially we are going to, for just a, a brief second, we're going to speed it up just a little bit as we initially gain control of that person. So if we were talking about the two-on-one wrist, just as I circle my wrist around their wrist, that might be pretty quick. And then just for another second or so as I transition to making their elbow raise and I go to put my hand on their elbow, my left hand, that may actually slow down a little bit. And then suddenly it speeds up as I press on the elbow. So you can see there's those changes in in the speed. How I like to describe that is if you ever go to the ocean and you see waves on the shore. Well, the immediate impression of a wave on the shore is a wave curls up and smashes down onto the shore, right? There's a little bit of, of a slow motion as it raises up and then quickly as it crashes down onto the shore. But if you really observe a wave, there's actually something that happens before that. And that is the water retracts away from the shore very quickly. And then it raises up slowly and then it crashes down quickly. And that kind of describes what I was talking about with the aikijitsu that real quick, then slow, then quick. And also the retraction and then the forward force. So the water leaves the shore, it retracts, it goes away from the shore and then it comes back at the shore. We can think of the shore as being the attacker as that person goes to front choke you or to grab your wrist or to push on you, you retract away. You, you make them go past their point of comfort and past their point of balance. They thought they were going to grab onto something or find resistance at a specific point in space and time. And it wasn't there. It was a little further than they planned and that's you retracting away. And then as you gain control, you're like the wave raising up. And then as you execute your technique, you typically are heading the person back in the direction that they initially came from at a high rate of speed. And so that view of a wave and its motion is how I think about Aiki when I do it. I retract a little bit, then there's a powerful you know, surge, and then it slams the person down at the end. So if you think about that as you're doing your Aiki, whether you're doing Irimi Nagi or you're doing Kotagi or any of those other type of Aiki Jetsu techniques, if you follow that sort of pattern, you'll find there's a lot of power in it.
0: Let's move on to the next technique, which is which is a nagewaza technique, harai gosh. I'll start out by uh, relating a personal story on this. It was maybe oh, <laughs> it was maybe a couple of years ago um, during a bash where I went up against somebody and I got haride, as, as as we say. And I've never experienced this uh, throw before, and it was absolutely devastating. It knocked ah. knocked the wind out of me. It knocked me out. It, I was in pain. I, I blacked out for a second uh, when I was on the ground, and literally you had to come onto the mat and carry me off with the...
1: Yeah, with the I remember mess. that moment, Yeah. <laughs> I also remember who did it, and uh, that person has a very, very strong Ghosh. <laughs> so uh, yeah, could you imagine if that person had thrown somebody gosh on concrete in self-defense? I mean, you were on two inches of mat, and you were trained how to fall, and it was still devastating, and I think that's why some people forget. Uh, how powerful throws are. You know, they're always so concerned with, you know, grabbing somebody and going down to the ground and doing nawaza or even just doing a sloppy throw just to get somebody to the ground so they can do nawaza. And I'm like, boy, if, if you just throw somebody correctly once, there's no need for much of anything else. They typically don't get up and, and fight you anymore. They're, they're hurt pretty badly. But continue.
0: Sure. So that became one of my most hated and likely one of my most favorite techniques just because I personally experienced how powerful it can be. So I want to spend a little bit of time today to really understand all the dynamics of it. And actually, this is a, a submission from one of our one of our listeners um, in the South Windsor Dojo wanted to learn more about this as well. It seems like a lot of people might struggle with this initially, myself included. Is that a perception, Shihan, or is it really a, a tough throw to, to learn?
1: I think it's a tough throw to learn only because you're going from learning all of these hip throws. So you're learning Ogosh or Ipan inagi or things that are a full hip throw. Your hip is extended beyond the midsection of your opponent. You know, you're throwing them over powerfully and you're in a very powerful, strong, stable stance. And then you move on to Harai Goshi. And Harai Goshi has you basically halfway across the person, so you don't have a full hip insertion, and you're only standing on one foot, which doesn't have a lot of balance to it. So making that transition to your body can be a little bit tough at the beginning to learn. The other thing I think that's really difficult with the throw is maintaining that very stiff and straight leg. At the beginning, that's a very, very important thing. As you get better and better at Harai Goshi, it it tends to matter less and less. But at the beginning, it's it's very important to understand that sweeping hip motion, which is what Harai Goshi means. I think that's just a, a little bit tough to learn. It's also one of the first techniques that you learn where the concept is you've only turned maybe halfway around or only inserted about half your hip, and now you've got to break the person's balance by essentially pulling them up up onto your back, you know, onto the side of your back. Combining that half turn, you know, lifting, creating that kazushi, lifting them half onto your back and standing on one foot while you sweep them with the other can be a little difficult at the beginning, but the body and the brain are amazing things. They form those neural pathways and and you know, pretty soon you you've learned how to do it. Now, doing it in class and doing it in real life of course are two different things as you know. You know, you can Easily execute things on totally cooperative partners that when you're out there, you know, doing randori or in a fight, you've got to try to execute with the correct timing at the correct moment with a you know resistant partner, and it can become a little more difficult. Now, I will say you've got a good harai goshi at a holiday bash, and that's certainly gave you respect for the technique, but that's still a competition. So there's an expectation that when you're out there grappling with somebody that they're going to try to throw you. And If that person was throwing another black belt or myself, they may not have been able to pull that off quite as easily as they did on you who may have – I don't know if you were a yellow belt or just a brand-new blue belt at that time.
0: Yeah, I think I was one or the other. I might have been at the uh, end of yellow or something.
1: Yeah, so you know, imagine just somebody on the street that has no idea what you're doing. Throwing them Harai Goshi is going to be incredibly easy. They're not going to have any reference point of how to resist or – or anything like that but let's talk a little bit about harai goshi and just how you do it let's think of an negoshi, just your basic old hip throw you've got your right arm around the person's waist you've got your left arm holding their elbow or their sleeve pulled very high and tightly across your chest uh, you've broken their balance forward and now you've stepped across in front of them whether you've used you know the front entrance or the side entrance Your hip is extended a little bit to the right to give them a little table to fall over. And then you pull very hard with your left arm, the one holding their elbow or their sleeve. And you guide them with your right hand and and you throw them over into hip throw. You've probably noticed if you've done it in Randori, sometimes you go in for a negoshi. Your timing is just slightly off or your hip isn't exactly inserted correctly. And the person can hop around your side and kind of get around the side of your throw. And you don't have the ability to execute it. Well, Harai Goshi certainly solves for that, because if that person is trying to get around your right side, you know, assuming you're doing a right-sided throw, and your leg is in the way, essentially, they're going to trip over that leg. Not only that, if your leg isn't just in the way, but it's also sweeping, swinging backward at the same time as they're trying to come around the side, then they're really going to get tossed down really hard. So that's really the concept behind Harai Goshi, is to stop somebody from coming around the side while doing O-Goshi. So, one of the best ways to learn it is just to basically start with an Agoshi position, however you get into it. But instead of inserting your hip all the way across, you're really only going to go about halfway across. So, my right hip will be more in the center of their body as opposed to beyond their right hip or right thigh. Now, I'm going to strongly pull them up onto my hip and lower back. I'm holding their arm with my left hand high and tight across my chest. And then my balance is going to be on my left foot. And then my right leg, very stiffly, as if I was wearing a cast on my knee so I couldn't bend my knee, will swing slightly out in front of me and then strongly back, striking their leg just above the knee on their lower thigh and sweeps them up into the air so essentially they take a ride over the top of your hamstring of your right leg and then they're thrown so your right leg the back of your right leg essentially takes on the job that your hip does in an ogoshi on the horai goshi the person falls over the upper part of your or the mid part of your hamstring and then you can throw them down and then quickly as they're being thrown once they're off your body and they're in the air and of course this only happens for a, a portion of a second you've got to bring that leg back down to the ground to gain your stability if your goal is to stay on your feet. Now of course in competition or in life-threatening situation you may not even care about that you may just throw that leg up as high as you can to make sure they're thrown it'll throw you off balance you'll end up landing on top of them but they'll be uh, they'll be the one landing on the concrete and you'll be the one landing on their nice soft body so it won't be that that big of a deal. Now, of course, harai goshi can be done from lots of other different entrances. The goal is really to get to the high collar grip of of the gi, so your right hand is grabbing the collar of the gi behind your uh, uke's neck, and being able to do harai goshi from that position because it's very very quick. I don't have to make that entrance like I do on a goshi, right? I don't have to come into the side with my right around my right arm around his waist. Or even to do, you know, sort of the front entrance or the reverse entrance. I'm I'm just standing there right in front of the person with a high collar grip, and I can just quickly reverse my position and just do the harai goshi incredibly quickly. Uh, that takes some time. Right? It may take you a couple of years of practice to get very good at that version of it, but that is absolutely the uh, the quickest version. And then harai goshi can also be used as, you know, a counter to a counter. So as an example, I may come in and try to do an uchimata on somebody, or I might come in and try to do a koichigiri or something where I'm trying to get one of their legs, and they simply either resist or they step out of your technique, and then I can quickly pivot my hips and catch them with a harai goshi. Uh, typically, that's that's where you'll you'll catch people is um, you can attempt a technique and then it fails, and then you can switch quickly into harai goshi. Or conversely, they can be trying a technique. You know, Maybe they're trying an Agoshi or an Ipan Sioi on you. It doesn't work. They decide to come back out into their Randori position, and they're really susceptible right at that point for you to spin and, and do a Harai Goshi.
0: The Harai Goshi seems like it's a pretty popular technique, even in Judo. Is there any difference between the way we execute this technique in Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu versus a typical Kodankan Judo?
1: No, there isn't. They are still performing that technique exactly the same in Judo and jujitsu. Jitsu. Um, it's originally, obviously, a jujitsu Jitsu technique that Judo just kept in its original form because it's such a powerful technique. There could be differences in, in how you enter. Obviously, Judo is often focused on the competition. So, you know, they're saying enter in this way when the person does this, or do the step across when the person does this, or, or whatever. In the self defense scenario, We're not really all that concerned with that person is out there playing a competitive role. We're just dealing with the attack. So we don't really have to think about it in the same way as judo. But the technique itself is executed exactly the same. Let me just add one more thing, too. For the smaller people, trying to execute Harai Goshi can sometimes be difficult, to say the least. You're trying to deal with somebody that's a little taller than you or a little heavier than you. And, you know, maybe you turn around to do Harai Goshi and you just don't have enough power to you know, do the Kazushi, bring them up on your back or, or whatever. One of the things that I would suggest that uh, everybody tries is an entrance where, and let's just take the Agoshi position, right? We'll we'll say you've got your right arm around their waist. My right arm is around their waist. I am going to step forward with my left foot sort of in front of the person at an angle. So if, if I was in an Agoshi and we were both facing towards 12 o'clock, imagine me stepping forward with my left foot towards maybe one or two o'clock. So that way I'm leaning my uke sort of to the side. His balance is now going onto his right leg and he's being leaned onto his side instead of being leaned forward like you would typically do in a harai goshi. Once that weight starts to go onto his right leg and come off his left leg, now there's a single point of failure. It's just that right leg where most of his balance is on. And then you can come in from the side and sweep a harai goshi. And take them off their feet so that's some uh, a way that I suggest for some of the lighter or smaller people to uh, practice their harai goshi because you can really catch somebody off balance to the side and and get a great uh, hip sweep
0: yeah that'll be very helpful for me especially so thanks for that Sean you're welcome lastly on, on this show we'll talk about uh Nawaza technique very typical one it sounds pretty simple on paper and it's Essentially ubiquitous in the MMA arena, and it's essentially a household name. We all know it as the arm bar, but the particular variation that we'd like to talk about today is from guard, Jujikatami.
1: Right. So, Jujikatami uh, is the arm bar that everybody refers to in MMA or Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, essentially following the same concept as we were talking before the elbow doesn't bend in the opposite way. Um, This a particular version of the technique has the arm locked between your legs uh, and with the elbow on the cross section of your hips and then, you know, the hand on your chest. And so you're creating that opposite pressure where your hips lift and it causes, you know, a lot of pain or can separate the elbow. So that's that's the particular uh, version, Jujikatami, that we're going to talk about. And from guard, that's one of the first positions besides mount, that you learn this uh, technique from. And the reason why it's so effective is untrained people straighten their arms quite a bit because straightening your arms creates distance. And that distance may be created because they don't want you near them, right? They're trying to keep you away or they're trying to particularly create distance so that they can punch you with the other hand. So if you can imagine you're in the guard position, somebody is between your legs, Uh, you're, you know, got them tightly wrapped and you want to hold them as close to you as possible so that they can't hit you. And of course they want to create as much distance as possible so they can hit you. So maybe they reach out and they put both hands on your neck and try to choke you. Very typical in self-defense. You're in the guard trying to protect yourself and they just see, Hey, this is really easy. I can just reach out with my hands and I can choke this person by the neck. Uh, the other way that might happen is they may just have one hand on your neck or on your chest. While they're trying to beat you with the other hand. So they're maintaining that distance that gives them the advantage, especially in that, you know, they're in the top position to just, you know, ground and pound, which you see, of course, in, in MMA. And those are the really advantageous positions for you in the guard to be able to go against that straightened arm and break the elbow or, you know, cause a submission if you're in competition. You can also imagine, you know, you're in a guard position. And somebody has holding a knife against your neck. So this could be, you know, a female that's in a sexual assault type role. It could be, you know, somebody that was attacking you with a knife and you took the guard position and next thing you know, you know, the guy's got a knife against your throat and you're like, "Oh God, what do I do right now because he's gonna slash my throat. Well, <clears> throat> perfect opportunity to move that knife to the side off your neck and, and just you know go into that arm bar and break his arm. So very versatile uh, technique. Um of course I'm not going to even get into the whole concept of the relation between you know Jujikatami and Sankaku Jimmy and Sankaku Garami and all of those type of movements, but we will in a later podcast, I hope, talk about that in particular because they're all so interrelated. But Jujigatami, let's talk about how to do that in particular. And then Sri, maybe you can tell me some of the typical problems that you've seen, you know, in the dojo with executing that correctly.
0: Definitely. So,
1: <clears throat> first of all there's a lot of different entrances and not every entrance is going to be right for every person. You should practice them all and you should get proficient at all of them because you never know, but you will find there may be one or two of those entrances that just, they really work for you and your body. So I'm going to talk about a few of them. So in guard, let's just start with person is giving you a front choke. And the reason I like to start with that is that pretty much guarantees they're going to have straight arms and it's very easy to practice from that position. So it's a good way to learn. One of the biggest, uh, Needs that you have to fulfill in order to do a good jujikatami is to have as little of your body touching the ground or the mat as possible. The more of your body that touches the mat, the more friction that you have and the less able you are to move quickly and effectively. So, if you're in the guard position, one of the first things you have to do in order to be able to move easily on the mat is to reduce your surface space. What you're going to do is you're going to lift your hips high. And you're also going to lift your head and your shoulders off the ground. That reduces the friction on the ground. So you probably have a spot on your back, maybe, you know, the size of a softball that's touching the ground. And it becomes very easy to pivot from left to right with so little of your body in contact with the ground. So that is very, very important. The second piece that you need to do is understand that you have to be out of alignment. So if I'm laying on my back in the guard position, and the person's between my legs and they're choking me, we are in alignment. Our torsos are aligned. If you could see our spines, you know, you'd see they're pretty much along the same line. I need to be out of alignment. I need to be out to the side in order to execute this technique. So essentially we would be forming a T, right? One person would be in one alignment and the other person would be in the exact opposite alignment, creating a cross position which is why Katami has its name in Japanese. Jujikotami, cross, lock. This is why that's described that way. So I have to get out to the side. And the easiest way to do that when you're first learning jujigatami I'm gonna do a right-sided side Katami as I describe here, is I'm going to reach up with my left hand and I'm gonna grab his wrist of his right hand that's against my neck and just leave it there. I just want it to be held against my neck. I don't want him to be able to pull his arm away. So I've retained his hand against my neck. As far as they're concerned, choking you, awesome. They they were expecting you to try to get them off their neck, not hold you on your neck. So then I'm going to take my right hand and I'm going to begin to reach underneath their left thigh. Okay, don't forget they're on their knees. So I'm going to reach with my right hand. I'm going to turn my palm back towards his thigh so my thumb is facing the ground. And I'm going to hook onto the back of his thigh. Those two positions, now I've got him pretty locked in. It's also going to help me pull myself to the side. But I can't just pull because I've still got my legs locked around him. My own body would resist my pull to the side. So I have to open my guard. I have to open my guard, let my feet open up, give space in between my legs. And here's what's really important, and I think a lot of people forget to do this. I need to bring my knees towards my head. So I open my guard and I bring both of my knees towards my head. Legs open as wide as possible. If I do that and pull on his thigh, it will pull me directly to the side and right into a jujikatami position, which is my right calf over his back. My left calf will swing over his head and lock him down. Now he's completely locked down, hand held against my neck. I've got his right thigh. I've got his upper body hooked into me very tightly with my calves and my feet, and now he can't move and he can't get away. At this point, I simply lift my hips up against his elbow, creating that lever and fulcrum, and I go beyond the point that his elbow actually comfortably bends, and I can cause a separation in his elbow. I can dislocate his elbow, or I can cause a tear in muscles, something where that person would you know, scream in pain and let go. Now, of course, we do this as a submission in Nawaza because, you know, we're simply getting to the point of pain and the person taps out and let's go. In the street, we're going to do it hard enough to break the person's arm. But that needs to lead to a question. Why would I do that in the first place? It doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense of me, number one, to me, to be rolling around on the ground anyway in a fight. I've already failed many things if I'm on the ground fighting, but if I'm on the ground fighting and my goal is is submission. When there's no weapon involved, I'm wasting time. My goal when there's no weapon involved is to disengage, get back to my feet and escape. I can swing into a Juji Kitami, I suppose, and try to break the guy's elbow. And maybe I'm safe if there's nobody else around. But I can tell you I've seen many fights. I have had reports of people that have been in fights. There's almost nobody That has been in a fight when there's been nobody else around and the person that's on the ground, they tend to get kicked and hit by other people who are not really even involved in the fight, just friends of the person that they're dealing with. And I don't want to take that chance. So let's keep in mind that even on the ground, those submission techniques that we call submissions are actually bone breaking techniques. And they're main they're really meant to stop somebody that has a weapon. Okay, so we've talked about that real basic version of Jujikatami, the one where you reach under, grab the person's thigh, swing the feet open, and catch them in Jujigatami when they're doing a front choke. Let's talk about another version that you can do, also a, a good, very basic version. And we'll just stick with the front choke position. I mean, we can get into all kinds of nuances about where exactly they place their hand, but if we just start with that, it's pretty easy. I'm going to reach up with my right hand this time, reach across his arms, and grab his right wrist with my right hand this time. So now I've essentially locked down both of his wrists and I'm holding on to his right wrist. And I'm going to reach up with my left hand. I'm gonna cross in front of his face to the right, and I'm going to put my hand on the left side of his face and jaw. So that's my beginning position. Then I'm gonna open my guard, pull my knees back towards my head, swing my body to the right as I'm pushing away on his face with my left hand. I'm causing his face to move to the right. And I'm essentially stuffing his head between my legs and then taking the jujikatami. So that's also a very easy, simple version of doing jujikatami. I think if you learn those first two on both sides, you know, you'll have a very good foundation for how to do the guard jujigatami or guard armbar, And then there's many, many other variations. If the person has their arms bent, there's a way to do, you know, a jujigatami. If they have their hands on the floor, there's a way to do jujigatami. And then you can do it from all kinds of other positions, from a failed triangle choke or a failed sankaku garami or or other type of positions. So what questions might you have and what difficulties might you have run into when you're doing jujigatami, Sri?
0: Well, One thing that kind of resounded with me that I should probably do more of is when the opponent has their arm in a location where it's uh, conducive to doing this technique to actually hold it in place because I believe that a lot of times people don't do that. And and what happens then?
1: So the only time you really shouldn't hold their hand in place would be that scenario where they had a knife against your throat. At that point, you know, you would move it off to the side because you're concerned with your throat can it cut, and then you would do your jujikatami. But that's really the only time. You really want to trap them. I mean, the whole essence of jujikatami is to have all of their body completely trapped so that it can't do anything to resist, and then it allows you to make that very small motion, lifting motion with your hips to separate uh, their elbow. So it's all about that tightness, you know, the position before submission concept I think that's that's really, really key biting down with those those feet and calves onto their back so that they can't uh, pressure you and and stack you not pushing away with your legs, because when you push away with their leg, you know, your legs, you're pushing their body away and their arm is attached to their body. So their arm is going to now move away and you're not going to have it tight into the position that you want to have. So it's really about keeping that that tightness of their body against your body that allows you to execute that.
0: Another issue that I've I've seen and I've witnessed is um, when you're executing the jujigatami and you don't go off to the side enough and you're kind of straight on. Right.
1: So that what what's going to typically happen there is you're going to try to reach with your left leg. If we're doing a right side of jujigatami as an example, you're going to try to reach with your left leg to get over their face. And now you find yourself kind of you almost self stacked yourself right you're, you're kind of in a very bent over position you have no power um, it's very hard to at that point you know get out to the side like you're supposed to I mean at that point you know you might as well completely flip over and do the version of Jujigatami where you're laying on your stomach and you're and you're pulling up on the arm than you would from the guard position because you you, you simply you know fail to follow the concepts of, of guard from of Jujigatami from the guard position.
0: Another issue that some people have, I personally don't because I have very long legs in comparison to the rest of my torso, my body, and and others who are maybe less flexible, is to bring that leg, I guess in the scenario that you described, the left leg around and uh, over the, the head.
1: Right. So that's where it's very important uh, to pull your knees towards your head. So if you can imagine yourself laying on the ground, not doing jujikatami, just laying on the ground as an exercise and bringing your thighs and your knees, you know, up to your chest as much as possible, almost like at the beginning of like a backward roll. Right. Or, you know, when we rock back and forth to kind of get that rounded position, if you have the ability to bring your legs and your knees back towards your chest. You know, pretty far. It doesn't have to touch your chest, but, you know, if you can just do that, then you can do jujikatami. If your legs are getting caught and you're talking about I'm not flexible enough, blah, 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 you're really just doing jujikatami wrong. I think people have to think that when they're doing this, as they're turning to the side, they need to bring both of their knees back towards their chest with their legs fairly wide open in order to create the space to move around the opponent's body. Otherwise, you won't. You'll try to get, like, your lower leg under their chin and, you know, like a you know, plata or something to that effect. You know, it, it's just you're totally out of position. So I think an exercise where the person simply holds onto the wrist, reaches under the thigh, then brings their knees back towards their chest as far as they can and then pivots and then just does it on the other side and goes back and forth and back and forth until they get used to that motion is what's going to give somebody a good jujikatami. Otherwise... They're just really just doing it incorrectly. If you can bring your thighs and your knees back towards your chest without a person in front of you, then you can do jujikatami. And if you're messing it up, you, you are just messing it up. You're not doing the correct position. It's not flexibility.
0: Okay. And this next one is a little odd. I'll just describe the scenario and and maybe you can tell, you know, tell us what, what's really going on here. But it, the scenario is that you think you're in a guard jujikatami position. However, you have the wrong arm trapped. What's really going on?
1: <laughs> and that happens so often. That's happened so often. And and typically, you know, you've, you've been there. I'll just be like, uh, wrong arm. But I don't really pick on it too much. And the reason I don't pick on it too much, and, and you know now that the level that, that you're at, is when you have the quote-unquote wrong arm, you actually are starting to get into the position for sankaku Garami. Right. And typically people that are at like white and yellow haven't learned some kakugurami yet. So it's just easier for me to say, you know, hey, you got the wrong arm because I know they were thinking of Jujigatami. But as you get into the higher levels, there is no wrong arm. It's just what technique do you do with that arm? So if you can imagine yourself, you know, swinging to the right and going for that Jujigatami, but instead of grabbing their right arm, which is supposed to be between your legs, you've grabbed their left arm, which is already against your legs. Now just think about continuing now to turn to your left and press down with your legs and essentially you know there you are you're going into sankaku garami but um, at the beginning you know it's, it's simply them forgetting at the very very beginning of that technique to retain the arm that they wanted to armbar. So you really have to kind of pound into the head that the very first thing you do is you trap that arm so that arm can't get away, and then the rest of your jujikatami can happen. You can't do the jujikatami and then somewhere in the middle go, oh, I, I need to capture that arm because it's it's too late by then.
0: And lastly, there, this one is more of a, I guess a, a mental or, or memory thing where, where I've witnessed during a rolling, ne uh, nawaza, that typically newer people don't remember which direction to pivot
1: right so that's why I like to um, start out maybe with the version where you grab under the thigh so if I grab one hand whatever hand it is that I grab and I want to grab the hand that's on the same side as I'm grabbing right so if I'm going to grab with my left hand then whatever hand is on my left side, of course, that's going to be the opponent's right hand, but you don't have to think about it. Whatever the closest hand is, if I grab that, then my other hand goes under the thigh, then I'm automatically going to turn in the right direction. That's all you really have to remember. So if you start the person by grabbing under the the hand and then grabbing under the thigh, they're always going to turn into the right direction. Of course, later on when you're moving a lot faster and you may be not doing that version of the technique, the only thing you have to remember is you always pivot into the opposite direction of the arm that you're grabbing. So if I grab that person's left arm, I am going to pivot to his right side. If I grab that person's right arm, I'm gonna pivot to his left side. And again, as you know, a lot of this just comes from endless, endless, endless repetition until your brain just forms those neural pathways and it knows which way to go.
0: Awesome, this has been really great, Shihan. Very, very informative, and a lot of little nuances in here that people typically don't think about or maybe you're just doing wrong so i really appreciate your time and being able to pick your brain on these techniques
1: oh yeah same here and and i'm just hoping that any student or instructor or anybody that's listening maybe just picks up one little thing right maybe they listen to the whole podcast and like geez, you know i i don't know if i always bring my knees back to my chest maybe i'm just going to concentrate on that for like the next three weeks or a month and i'm going to see if that improves my jujitami or Maybe I don't practice the grabbing under the thigh enough. You know, Maybe I'm not thinking about that, or maybe I, I forget to retain the hand. So I'm going to focus on one of those little points. If somebody can just pick up one little pointer and it, it improves their you know, technical ability, then I think uh, you and I have accomplished what we set out to do in these technical podcasts. So again, thank you so much, Sri. Looking forward to doing the next one together.
0: Me too. Likewise. Thanks, Jehan. Have a great day. You too, Sri.